You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hi, Holly. Hey, Robert. How are you doing? (laughs) I am okay. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah. 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 Well, I assume that we're both kind of speaking to the same thing, which obviously is that this past week we have seen a lot happening with the death of George Floyd and others. I know that obviously a lot of the current protests, like that was a catalyst, but there's Mm -hmm. a longstanding history of trauma and violence against Black people in our country, right, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of racial justice. And so uh, we had an episode scheduled for today. Mm-hmm. And the more that we talked about it this weekend, we thought, hey, this is not what we want to do right now. We want to yeah. get out of the way as best we can and amplify voices that are doing good work in this area, right? And so mm-hmm. we thought we would amplify and re-release Mm-hmm. An interview that we did with Austin Channing Brown, who's somebody that we we really respect. Um, an interview that I did with her back in 2018, uh, when her book "I'm Still Here" came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's what the interview will be. Um, I also do you want to tell us a little bit about the show notes and and all the things we've dumped in there? Yeah, sure. So we want to equip our listeners with a number of resources. Um, and amplify other voices that uh, we care deeply about, ensuring that they are heard. And so um, not only do we ask for you to listen to this episode, but also please do check out the show notes um, for this week. And just as a way to connect with some other voices, to receive some resources, you know, I have certainly seen many people who are like, what do I do? What's the next step? And um, we really just want to point our listeners to some good resources and and for us to get out of the way. So to pay to allow some others who are speaking on this intersection, particularly around faith and mental health within the black community, we're just gonna include as many of those resources as we can um, in the show notes this week. So yeah. 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 Anything else? I don't know. I can yeah. edit that out to make it a smooth transition, I guess. No, but. no, no, no. That's okay. I think the last thing I would say too is don't just listen to our episode with Austin. This week, go pick up her book. Um, Please go pick up her book. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Um, I would check out that book. Yeah, go go pick it up and support those whose voices we really need to be hearing right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, we will leave it at that and go ahead and get out of the way. Um, Again, check out the show notes for all those resources. And here is our interview from back in 2018 with Austin Channing Brown. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so excited today to be joined by Austin Channing Brown. Austin is a writer, speaker, and practitioner who helps schools, nonprofits, and religious organizations practice genuine inclusion. Her writing has appeared in outlets like Christianity Today, Relevant, Sojourners, and The Christian Century. Austin, how are you today? Oh, I'm so good. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. And if I'm not mistaken, a new mom? I am a new mom. Nice. Well, we can we can bond. I'm actually a new father, so. Are you? How old is your little one? Um, he is like two and a half weeks now. 
So, oh my god! By the time this comes out, he'll be three weeks old. So, oh my goodness! Yeah. Oh, I remember that so well. <laughs> yeah. How long ago was that for you? Uh, my little one is eight months. Okay. So. Okay. So you yes. got some any uh, any tips for me? Oh my word! Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Is your little one sleeping? Um, for the most part, yeah. We're trying okay. to we're trying to get it mostly to sleeping at night. You know, he's right. still sleeping a lot during the day, so we're trying right. to transition that. But he's doing all right. He's good. You know, I don't have anything to really base it on, but it seems like he's doing well. Good, good, good. I remember my husband and I were zombies at two weeks. So. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're doing all right. It's good uh, you know, day by day. I hear that. <laughs> well, you're not here necessarily to talk about parenting. Uh, you're <laughs> here to talk about your brand new book, I'm yeah. Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. This book is phenomenal. I've read it one and a half times now already, uh, and it hasn't even come out yet. So uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. L- let me ask you, I guess, what what inspired you to write this book? Sure. I um. You know, I really, one, just love memoirs, Um, but I feel like a lot of popular memoirs are um, written by folks who grew up in an all-Black space, so they grew up in the South, or they grew up in the hood, or, um, and then they sort of, like, transitioned into uh, dominant culture, or suddenly became aware of dominant culture and having to navigate that, Um, and I just wanted to make space for the story that a lot of black folks have, which is having always been around white folks Um, and the difficulties that come with that. Right. Very, very different um, from from growing up like in the hood or something like that, Um, but no less valuable, I think. And so, um, yes, I just wanted to kind of write a book that discussed um, those of us who are the only black person in our workplace or the only black person in our school or the classroom or yeah. the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really wanting to bring to light the the unique struggle that that is. Yeah. Well, I guess I kind of jumped right into the book, but since yeah. you, know, you kind of talk about your background and the book largely is a memoir, can you tell us a little bit for folks that may be unfamiliar with you or this is the first time they've ever heard of you? I mean, can you give us a little bit of that backstory? Um, I wish there was more to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really, my upbringing is like so super average. (laughs) Um, I um, grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. There were like a handful of of other black families around. I've attended private Christian schools my entire life. Um, And same thing, like I was very rarely the only student of color, Um, like in the school, like I don't think I've ever had that, but um, I have been the only one like in a high school classroom or one of just a handful in an elementary school. And, And when I got to college, just became really passionate about racial justice um, and started, you know, really studying it, started preaching about it. Um, I got connected with Brenda Salter McNeil, who's been practicing and teaching about racial reconciliation for 20 plus years now. Um, and so I learned a lot from her and was really mentored by her. Um, and then have just held a bunch of odd jobs, (laughs) (laughs) but all that circle around justice. So I've worked at foster care agencies, a homeless shelter, Um, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, I've done fundraising, Uh, I've done short-term missions, I've worked at 
churches and higher ed. So <laughs> I've bounced around a lot. Yeah. Um, but always, always just sort of looking at the themes of particularly racial justice. Um, yeah, and so I just felt like it was time to sort of bring all that I've experienced in all of those different locations together in, in one book. Yeah. So let me ask, I mean, for people that aren't really, you know, haven't studied a lot about racial justice or things like that, right? When you say black dignity in a world made for whiteness, right? Um, yeah. That's, I'm willing to bet, I've never done a survey, but I'm willing to put a lot of money <laughs> on the fact that our audience by and large are, you know, white Christians or uh -huh. white mental health professionals, somewhere okay. in, in that realm. So what do you mean a world made for whiteness? Yeah, I, one, I mean that, um, and it was sort of in a very tangible sense and <laughs> that um, like I, I have attended one school getting my master's degree where I was in the majority. Um, but every other educational experience I've had and almost every other work experience I've had has been in a predominantly white space, a predominantly white organization, school, yeah. all that. And I don't think a lot of white folks realize how much those spaces are created for them. Um, and I think a lot of white folks have struggled, not a lot, but there are some white folks who have really struggled with my title. Yeah. Um, because for exactly what you said, like they've just, they just never, they have never um, asked themselves, you know, yeah. whether or not, you know, the spaces that, that they occupy cater to them in any way. And so I try really hard, you know, I spend the entire book really, trying to give concrete examples, trying to give tangible examples of how this world really does still function um, for, for white folks um, and people of color often just have to maneuver around of those spaces. Yeah. One, one example that, I mean, it was kind of the first thing there that I hadn't even thought of, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about how your parents named you Austin because right. it sounded like a white guy's name. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was in a in the library. I was I was a kid and very used to people mistaking me for being a boy. Um, that was that happened all the time. And and I knew that other people weren't like losing their minds. Like, how dare you not realize that Austin is a girl's name too? Because it was the era, you know, the late eighties, early nineties was the era of personalized trinkets <laughs> you know, and everything <laughs> had a kid's name on it, <laughs> like keychains and cups mm -hmm. and right, all the things. And I would always go search for my name and my name would always be in the boys section. If it was there at all, it would be in the boys. And I was like, oh, this is like really a boy's name. Um, so that was, it came with its minor annoyances like that. But um, it wasn't until I was in a library and the librarian, when I handed her my card, didn't believe that my name was Austin and asked me if I was sure about my name and my library card. And I thought, you know what, I, what, why? <laughs> why did my parents do this to me? I don't understand. <laughs> and so I marched over to my mother and I said to her, what, what's the deal? I, you know, help me understand this. And she said, you know, one day you're gonna have to look for jobs, you're gonna have to apply for college. And she was like, we knew that if someone just saw your application, if they had never met you, they would assume you're a white man. And we just wanted to make sure that we got you to the interview. Mm. 
she said, now, once you get there, I'm sure you'll like blow everyone away. Like you're going to be so great, but we just had to get you to the interview. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that is so, so real. Like there are a million studies on this, right? <laughs> of, <laughs> um, from jobs to rentals to Airbnb. Like there are so many studies about this. Um, that if you have a black sounding name, it is very easy to be discriminated against. Hmm. And I have black friends who actually, who have like really, really black sounding names, but they shorten it or use a middle name or something to make it sound more white yeah. and put that on applications, on cover letters, or when they're calling about like a rental or something, they'll use that name. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... I guess I assume a lot of people are probably coming from the same place as me, right? I grew up in the 90s, and mostly what I remember being taught was, you know, oh, the civil rights movement was a thing that happened, or racism was a thing that happened in textbooks right. and things, right? And right. so it was kind of this narrative of, oh, we're past all this now. Right, 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 right. I don't right, think right. was only my experience. I think that's by and large. And you talk a lot about, in the book, about kind of sanitizing our past and making it more comfortable right. so that we're okay thinking, oh, we're past all this. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I was um, touched by that same era. And, and I think that's why I had such a jolting experience in college yeah. because my parents, um, my parents worked really hard to fill in the gaps, right? So in school, you learn about the civil rights movement, sort of. You definitely learn about MLK and Rosa Parks. Those are probably the only names you had to memorize. Right? <laughs> it's sort of boiled down into like three sentences. Slavery was probably one paragraph, <laughs> you know, and that's it. And that's if they weren't called like servants or share or something, you know, much right. more palatable. Um, and even then you were still learning about white folks. <laughs> really, like You didn't actually have to memorize a, someone who's was enslaved. Like you didn't have to memorize their name. And so um, my parents tried to sort of like fill in, right, the gaps, but it's so much. And you got to always decide, like, how much should a kid really know? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so I went on this trip when I was in college that included going to a plantation that was still being operated by the same family who had owned slaves on that plantation. Hmm. Um, and then we went to a museum that had a lynching exhibit. And, and both of those two things were the first time that I connected emotionally with black history. Hmm. So I knew it and I understood it and um, had been doing, you know, um, um, the book reports on it, right? Like I still remember doing a book report on Harriet Tubman when I was a kid. So it, it wasn't that I was unaware of the history, but it was always so like, like you said, so sanitized and so clean and so um, wrapped up with a bow. Yeah. Um, that I had never really faced one, just how bad it was. And then two, I had never really taken into account that those, those are real folks, like these yeah. like real people endured this history. And, and it was really helpful for me to, I have found that studying history is really helpful for understanding our present. Yeah. And our present, which isn't really that far removed from our history, right? I mean, I, I mean, it's so close. <laughs> even I think recently it's, and this is going to be more, I guess, for me, but I've been more aware of it. It seems like it's more uh, evident, more obvious in the past, let's say, year and a half or two years. Sure. sure. Um, which I know, you know, plenty of people would say it was never gone. You just didn't see it because you were a white kid growing up. But I think, yeah. I feel like we've had to come face to face with a lot of it 
more more publicly recently anyway. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I, I would say that it started because um, we, we operated under this like colorblind, everything's fine. <laughs> Let's all hold hands and drink a Coke kind of thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. For, for most of the 90s, and of course, like racism and systemic racism was happening then too. Yeah. Uh, but I think especially within Christianity, we were, we were definitely all on the like kumbaya train for sure. Yeah. And, um, and, and let the world do what the world does, right? Like, like we're not going to touch all those things that are happening out in the world with the, the war on drugs or the, you know, like we're just going to keep... Right all of that at bay um, and just listen to DC talk, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? um, and I would agree that when, when, when Obama became president, um, I think that's when a lot of racism really started to rear its head. And then it's sort of just like been a growing fire since then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is that like, as you know we're moving through and it kind of seems like we all just agreed to pretend like we were fine and none of it ever <laughs> happened really right. uh, but then to have it come kind of roaring back in like a hey i'm gonna come punch you in the face kind of way yes. I mean, what is that yeah. like to navigate through it's really um jolting you know um i i i, I confess even <laughs> even as I talk about, you know, the past and talk about how the past isn't really the past and <laughs> how we have to deal with racism right now and all those things, America can still surprise me. And I, I hate it, but it can. <laughs> you know, I, I never thought that there would be a day when a white supremacist would walk into a church and just kill black folks because they're black. Hmm. Right? Like that... Yeah. That is that is straight out the 50s and 60s, you know, yeah. when you would bomb churches and, um, you know, bomb the locations, bomb NAACP offices. And, you know, like that, that was supposed to be a bygone era, I right. thought. Right. Um, I never, I never imagined. But you know what? I, I still remember a news anchor coming on TV and announcing that a black church had just experienced this. And in my gut, I knew that it was about race. And it, and when you think about it, it could have been about anything, right? Like it could have been a domestic dispute. It could have been like, there's so many, so many things, right, sadly, right. that it could have been, but something just, I just knew. And, um, and that's still, it's still really painful. You know, like I, I feel a lot of things, like I feel anger and I feel frustration and, um, but there's also a tremendous amount of sadness, um, that there could be so much hate, yeah. um, for, for a body, for a brown body. Like it, it really, I try not honestly to stop and think about it for too long. Um, yeah. because it, it is, it's, it's, it's really really painful and and then to try to digest the history of that hatred and how far that hatred has been willing to go yeah um yeah it's it, it is it's hard it's really hard 
Yeah, we did an episode a couple months back about race and faith and mental health and kind of how all those wow. kind of came together. And our guests, they both talked about um, racial trauma, which was a term that I had never yeah. really heard before, but they were seeing a lot of in kind of the clients that they were seeing. And I think that was pretty eye-opening to me that, I mean, when we think about trauma, usually we think about PTSD or something like that, but to think right. about it in uh, terms of, you know, racial trauma is, I think, was... I don't know. It kind of left me like speechless. I just let them talk for a while, which was good anyway, but yeah. you know, I kind of had to stop and process that. So you talk some about, I mean, right there, you talked about kind of this hatred, knowing that it's still there. And <laughs> what you write in the book, you write about niceness. Right? There's one, I mean, <laughs> yep. you said, when you believe niceness disproves the presence of racism, it's easy to start believing bigotry is rare and that the label yeah. racist should only be applied to mean spirited, intentional acts of discrimination. Right. So yeah. can, you, can you talk about that? Because I, I do feel like most of the time we think like, oh, that's not me. That's like one guy, right? That we just <laughs> talked about. That's one guy. Yeah. And the rest yep. of us are mostly fine. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So um you're you're getting to to why I wrote this book, right? No 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 one who would ever consider walking into a church and shooting it up, and regardless of who the color of the people there. Um, are going to pick up this book and read it, right? Like that's not, (laughs) that's not who this is for. Um, And, and I, I wanted to try to express to those who already care about racial justice, who are already on board, who um, intentionally hire people of color, who are looking for people of color to bring to the conference, um, who attend a multiracial church on purpose um, who church planted just to have them all alter- right? Like the folks who are, who are already like, yes, let us pursue justice. Yeah. Um, and trying to give a window into how racism operates still, even in those spaces. Um, I feel like it's, it's so much easier to point to the bigot, right? <laughs> to right, the, right. to the guy carrying the KKK sign. It is much harder to see how, harm can be hidden by niceness. Hmm. Um, and I think, I think this is a concept that becomes clear or that maybe we're less resistant to um, when we think about it in the context of a different kind of relationship. So if you think about being in a fight with a sibling or hmm. right, being in an uh, uh, unhealthy relationship with an uh, in-law or right, yeah. um, attending an unhealthy church or being in a relationship with an unhealthy pastor, um, right. And you think about all the times that you've been around each other and you've been nice, but harm was still being done. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. like, like, sure, we can sit in a room together and we can laugh and we can talk. But that niceness didn't stop harm from happening. Yeah. The same is true in, in relationships around around race, that it, it doesn't require meanness um, for racism and for racist decisions to still be made. Um and that is, is why I call this in a world made for whiteness, because so often our leadership teams are still all white. And, and the reason that our leadership teams are still all white is because we have put whiteness on a pedestal without realizing it. Hmm. And so, so we look for similar characteristics in one another, a same way of thinking, a same way of talking, a same way of, and we, and we look for connections with one another. So what kind of music do you like? And where do you go to hang out? And what do you do for fun? And, <laughs> um, 
And those things have a tendency to perpetuate themselves, right? You find that you you end up just looking for yourself right. <laughs> um, and your best friend and your right people that you know, people in your network. Um, and before you know it, you have created a culture where whiteness is is what's being celebrated. Um, and even even though you're nice, even though you're nice to everyone, <laughs> even though you're kind, and even though you would never say a mean word to anybody, um, niceness doesn't prevent harm. Hmm. It's kind of the difference, I guess, between like individual bigotry and like systemic racism, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I think one of the best examples of this in the book is a teacher that I had when I was in high school. And she was so darling. We loved her. She taught a religion class and she cussed all the time. So we were like in love. (laughs) (laughs) I could not get enough of both of those things. Um, And she, she one day confessed that she was using seating charts in the classroom to separate students of color. Hmm. And she hadn't really like truly been aware of that until she um, didn't recognize that someone's name was black. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like it was a quote unquote um, white American sounding name. Yeah. Um, and so when the students walked in and sat down in their assigned seats, she saw these two black girls sitting together. And her first thought was, oh man, they're going to be disrespectful. They're not going to pay attention. They're just going to talk and play this whole semester. And she caught herself mid thought. Yeah. And she was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I have been using this as a way to make sure that students of color don't sit next to each other. She was always nice to me. She mm-hmm. never did anything wrong to me. And I'm sure she was nice to other students of color, but she was still using her racial bias. She was creating a policy, right? She was making decisions around a racial bias. And mm-hmm. so that's that's really what I'm trying to get at that, um, yeah, that niceness doesn't doesn't prevent harmful thoughts, harmful actions yeah. um, from playing out before us. Yeah, you you also talk some about kind of this idea of racial reconciliation and kind of what we think that is sometimes, and what maybe <laughs> that actually looks like. Um, can you talk some about that? Yeah, I um, there's a lot of folks who don't use the term racial race, racial reconciliation anymore, and I totally respect that. I truthfully probably use racial justice more often than I use the phrase racial reconciliation. Hmm. But I feel like those who do use the term should like put the potency back in it. <laughs> like should put the the revolution that that should contain yeah. um, back into the word. So you think about being reconciled with God. Right? Like that is that's supposed to be massive. Right? Like that's yeah. supposed to be extraordinarily transformative that is supposed to be filled with wonder and delight and goodness and um, a different way of being in the world of seeing other people of loving other people like it's supposed to be huge right like we have a whole testament about how big (laughs) this is supposed to be right and how it's supposed to change our lives and change the way we see one another and unfortunately we we don't carry that same level of revelation of being reconciled with god as being reconciled with one another Hmm. when it comes to just one another we're content with like a coffee date or 
really good diversity numbers or having one black friend yeah. or or having an MLK service every year or right like we like we boil it way way down um, to its simplest measurement yeah and and for me I just want to I want to encourage I want to I want to invite the church into something larger like if you are if you're still using the term reconciliation let's let's put how revolutionary that should be um, back into that term. Let's think about how equitable we can possibly be. Let's think about how just we can possibly be. Like how, yeah. how, how far could we take this? How, how upside down could we be compared to the racism in the world? You know, yeah. how, how opposite could we be? <laughs> um, and, and, and really wanting that idea to light a fire under us um, as we pursue racial justice. Um, because right now, the ways that we use reconciliation um, are, are so flat um, and so lacking in any sort of excitement. <laughs> so what would, I mean, when you say that, obviously, I mean, we've got, you know, diversity hires and things like that, yep. that are kind of yep. the what can we do but still be pretty much comfortable? I mean, what what, what, would, what would it look like to have true reconciliation? I mean, what would that oh, take man. for people listening? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I want to be a part of finding out, you know. I, I, wonder, I wonder what it would look like to be a part of a ministry, a nonprofit organization. Um, whose decision-making isn't derived based on who gives how much money. Mm. You know, I'd love to see boards that are truly diverse, boards that are like 51% people of color. I'd love to see, um, and, and not just people of color, but folks from different walks of life, right? Folks who yeah. didn't go to seminary and folks who didn't graduate from high school, folks who um, used to be incarcerated and, and folks who are doctors, folks who, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. to, like to really celebrate all that we are um, and, and, and all that God is doing in the world and to bring as much diversity as possible around our tables and decision-making and investment. Um, so I think about, um, let's say like the publishing industry um, and particularly Christian publishing is so, so <laughs> white. Oh, my Lord. Um, right. And so I think what would it look like to invest in women of color the same way that white women are invested in? Yeah. Right. What would it what would what would it look like to allow women of color to have that one book that failed and then continue to invest in them the same way white folks are allowed to have a book that failed? And then like keep investing in them, yeah. you know, like, 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 right. Like that kind of equity, like what would it look like to, to actually to, 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 this sounds so simple, but really what would it look like to actually treat white folks and people of color the same, Yeah, you know, to give them the same investment, to give them the same opportunities, to give them the same number of times to fail or to make a mistake um, to give them the same opportunities before they're quote unquote ready, 
Um, you know, like what what would it look like? And um, yeah, that that question is exciting to me. And being a part of organizations that are trying, right? That are imperfect but are trying um, is exciting to me. Yeah. I think you were talking about publishing. I was even thinking about, um, I feel like it's been a big thing recently, but, you know, conferences, big Christian conferences. Gosh, it's like 95% white dudes. Isn't it the truth? Isn't it the truth? And so many of them are saying the exact same thing. (laughs) Right? And I'm like, so we can have like five guys talk about prayer, but we can only have one person talk about racial justice. I don't understand. Yeah. Like, right? Like, why can't we have five people talking about racial justice and one person talking about prayer? Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Um, but yeah, that's another great example. Um, I, I wish I could come up with a, like a really clear example um, around mental health. I, um, I used to, I, I used to work in higher ed, most recently worked in higher ed and, um, handling mental health crisis was a huge part of my job, like right in the middle of crisis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had, I wish I had more to say about that, but I do wonder, um, I guess just like off the top of my head, I wonder about access. I wonder about opportunities that are given or taken away. Right. So when a student, misses right and is gone and um is getting help are they treated the same way as white students who have to miss um you know i i I do i i wonder i wonder about that we even in that last episode i was telling you about we talked about even just the numbers of mental health professionals kind of the percentages of different races different ethnicities right and how it's still overwhelmingly you know, white, I mean, really white men, but then white men and women, you know, and, and what kind of what that representation says to people who are walking in trying to find some type of things like that. So similar in terms of kind of the, the powers that be, you know, what offering to help people. Yes, yes, yes. I've never, I've never said this to anyone. So you're going to be the first person I say this to. Oh, please be good. Um, Yeah. Maybe you're going to say something really, really bad at me. No, no, no. It's personal. It's just something I've never shared before. So, so this is common knowledge. I, um, not common knowledge. This isn't a secret. Um, so I really struggled with postpartum depression, um, after I had my, my baby. Um, and, um, but what I have never told anyone is that I was offered the opportunity to like go see a therapist to try and talk through, um, what was happening with me. And I didn't do it. And the reason I didn't do it was because the only options were white women. Yeah. And I really wanted to talk to somebody who looked like me. Like if I was going to do it, I wanted to talk to someone who understood black family dynamics, who understood um, what I was thinking about in terms of having a black little boy, um, particularly in this era <laughs> that we're yeah. living through, you know, and, and I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't go. In fact, I, I made the appointment and then canceled because I just didn't have it in me to try and explain to somebody what it's like to live in, in, in a, in a, um, in a black girl's body. Yeah. When you talk about having a black son and the things that come with that, I mean, you write, there's one chapter in the book that's a letter to, at the time, your future son, right? Yeah. Um, 
can you talk a little bit about because I think some people just having listened to that would think, well, what do you? I mean, what do you mean? What's the sure. difference? For sure. And what all comes with that? Yeah. So, um, my husband and I, we already think about what we will do the first time someone calls him the N word. We already think about what school we will send him to, what neighborhood we will live in, because we don't want him to be the only black child in, you know, an entire school or in his classroom. Um, I have hard, had a really, really difficult time um, since he's been born watching videos um, that are showing um, how unarmed black men are being beaten or killed in the streets. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of consider it part of my job to be like in the know. Um, and I'm still like aware of them, but I can't, I can't watch them. I can't read the transcript. I can't, like, I just can't, yeah. I'm too tender. Um, I, um, wrote on, on Twitter just recently, actually, that it's so interesting to me how often, um, folks will stop me and, and like target or <laughs> the grocery store, um, to stare at my son because he is so dang cute. And part of that is just cause he's a baby. Right. Right. But, you know what I mean? Um, but, but one day, um, I'll walk through the store with him and it won't be, a neutral experience, right? There, there's going to come a day when I will watch a white woman have fear in her eyes. Um, I will watch someone like swing their purse to the other side of their body. Um, you know, like he will, he will be someone to be feared, um, as opposed to someone who is considered cute or a handsome young man or who is, you know, just growing so much or, um, and it's going to happen so soon. It's going to happen so soon. I think about, you know, Tamir Rice, um, who was only 12 and was still misidentified for being so grown. Um, so yeah, so just, just the ways that the world will treat my son differently. Um, of course, like police encounters, like what will he do the first time? He's pulled over, and then the second, and the third, and then the fourth, and the fifth, you know. Yeah. Um, and how will I talk to him about that? How will I talk to him about being so proud of who he is and still having to be careful as he walks through the world? Yeah. So you write some in the book. There's a, another paragraph that I kind of want to read because I thought it was Please. fantastic, but it was about um, kind of being comfortable right we've talked about this idea of not wanting to address things because it makes us uncomfortable or things like that <laughs> yep and this this paragraph here says our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort it's not yep. a comfortable conversation for any of us it is risky and messy it is haunting work to recall the sins of our past but is this not the work we have been called to anyway is this not the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth and inspire transformation? It's haunting, but it's also holy. Mm. I think that's so I really good. believe that. I really believe that. You know, um, um, are you familiar with the New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book? Um, I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. So she, um, she spends the bulk of her book talking about... Um, the history of racial injustice in the criminal 
justice system, particularly around laws that we've created. Yeah. And so her book, it can, it can be really thick because she's like, here's how this law was created. Here's the circumstances that surrounded it. Here's the results of that law. Right. So, um, it is super informative, but she spends the first two chapters, I think, just talking about America's history with black folks. And it is so packed and so good. But I think somewhere in, in that first or second chapter, she says, you know, every time there is racial progress, like every time we move forward, there is a backlash that happens. Yeah. So she says, right, so we ended slavery and we, we, we did like reconstruction, right? And then there's a backlash to reconstruction, right? And we end yeah. up with black codes and the new Jim Crow, right, Jim Crow. Um, and, and, and she says in that book, you know, we'll see, essentially, I'm like super paraphrasing, but essentially <laughs> she says, we'll see what happens after Obama, right? So we yeah. have this major jump in racial progress. We'll see. Will history continue to repeat itself? Where we will we have another backlash, or will we actually choose to move forward? Yeah. And we now have our answer. Yeah. But that's why I I that's that's really where that that sentiment comes from that you just read. That it is so hard. It's so hard to go back through history. It's so hard, and it is so haunting and so frightening. And what we what 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 has been done to black folks and other people of color is just brutal. Like it is just brutal, but it's also informative for who we could be for whether or not we will choose to be different the next time around, you know? Yeah. And that's why I really harp on knowing our history and reading voraciously. And because our history is so so informative for both how we got here and who we'll choose to be next. Yeah, I think that's so good in terms of you know needing to be uncomfortable. I mean, having those conversations yeah. and learning from our history. I mean, even we talked about it a little bit, but even just the name of your book, you know, a, a, <laughs> in a world yep. made for whiteness. You know, there's a yep. big chunk of people that you're gonna say, "Well, I'm not reading that." That's you know, yep. I didn't, I didn't do anything, right? Which yep. tends to be kind of this reflex of like, "Well, I shouldn't have to be uncomfortable," or you know, right. we're not doing anything wrong. But I think that's that's so good. I wish there was. Um, it would be nice if there was an easier way. <laughs> <laughs> It would be so nice. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think we often talk about the pursuit of racial justice in terms of pain. And there is a lot of pain. You know, recognizing injustice and being honest about that is is a painful experience. But working on it together, finding community and cohorts um, who have chosen to rally around an issue, who are learning about an issue together, who are for change, who are educating others. Like there's this work is also filled with joy. Yeah. And 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 that's why I wanna, you know, say that it's haunting, but it's also holy. Like yeah. it transforms who we are, it transforms our relationships, it makes you come alive. Like you have a purpose that is larger than just you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you are fighting for communities and with communities, you are not alone you are not isolated um and it's really beautiful work too um and i wish i had big enough words to convey 
um, that the discomfort, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what I mean, is not all there is. Um, it's part of it, but there's more. There's yeah. more. Yeah. Sometimes when when I'm having conversations like this, I, I just because it's kind of the world I'm in, I draw parallels to kind of the process of therapy, right? When you yeah. Go in, I mean, it's and I've been on both sides of it, right? But uh-huh. it, I mean, it sucks a lot of the time. You have you can't just you know if you say, hey, I want to get better at this thing or I want to deal with this thing, you don't get to just say, well, I'll just kind of pretend it didn't happen and move forward. A lot of times you have to work through it, right? And so, right. I mean, so I feel like there's a lot of parallels of for real change, real growth to happen in any area, there has to be that tension of, well, we have to walk through the parts that suck, the parts that oh, are really I painful. I love that. Yes. Yes. Are there, in, is there any other topics you want to hit before we kind of wrap up? You know, um, there's only one question I've really been liking the answer to because I don't know, this might be even the the next book that I write, not that I'm like itching to write (laughs) another one, you know, anyway. Um, (laughs) But as I, as I think about, um, you know, our conversations on racial justice and we, we, I, I feel like we're, we're entering an era where we're doing a much better job of talking about, um, of talking about whiteness, of talking about white guilt, of talking about white supremacy, Um, of talking about right racism and really identifying um, a lot of that. And I I think I just want to make sure that we don't lose the conversation about the dignity of blackness. Yeah. You know, I feel like, um, I feel like in a funny way, you know, white supremacy can creep in even to a conversation about racial justice, right? (laughs) Where we still just talk about white folks. (laughs) It's like, well, Maybe we should like talk about both. Yeah. <laughs> we should talk about everyone, um, and and that's why I think this project is particularly um, why I'm particularly proud of it um, because it isn't just you know white folks are bad <laughs> you know it isn't just you know like down with whiteness um, it is also the beauty of blackness the beauty of our culture the beauty of our hair and our authors and our um, churches and our spiritual depth and, you know, and, and really an invitation. Um, Yeah. An invitation to note how empty whiteness can be, Hmm. Um, but that we can, we can do both. We can, we can name what whiteness is and we should, and we should continue to do that. But I think it's important that we also celebrate blackness and celebrate people of color and celebrate marginalized bodies. Um, Cause I think, I think we miss part of the holiness, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, if we never get to, to, to what we can celebrate together. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Austin, you can find her at austinchanning.com on Twitter at Austin Channing, or you can pick up this book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. All of those links will be in the show notes. If you want to connect with me, as always, you can find me at robert vorecom or on social media at Robert Vore. Austin, do you have any closing thoughts for us today before we wrap up? No, this was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. 
Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 